Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. School security is probably one of the most complicated and controversial issues in, in education these days. And you got a glimpse of it, Clark, on Thursday as you spent most of the day uh, at a meeting to, to discuss school security and school security options. Give us a sense of the room. It, it does not sound like it was a, a pleasant gathering. Kind of a tense meeting, Kevin. What this was, this was a an advisory board meeting for the Idaho Office of School Safety and Security. That's the outfit that the legislature and Governor Otter created in the 2016 uh, legislative session. You may be familiar with that work, especially if you're an educator. Uh, this is a group uh, housed in the Division of Building Safety that has gone through about two-thirds of Idaho's school school buildings and issued individualized, so goes, personalized school kind of safety assessments. Right. They go side by side, right? They go yep. to a school and say, you ought to do something about that front entrance. It's not right. safe. You ought to do something about not propping doors open so that somebody can walk in and, and yep. not be noticed. That's the group we were talking about. That was their annual advisory board meeting. It was on Thursday out in Meridian and kind of a tense meeting. And this gave me a sense of how dynamic and important and divided the school safety issue is now during the 2018 election season and certainly during the upcoming 2019 legislative session. But what happened? Because a lot of the discussion Thursday really wasn't about what the Office of School Safety and Security is doing. It had a lot more to do with what uh, State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra has proposed to do regarding school safety, correct? Yeah, there were kind of actually two different distinct parts of the meeting. Uh, one, the afternoon session was all about looking at Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra's school safety plan. That's the KISS plan, Keep Idaho Students Safe. We've talked about that before. And once again, more examples of people pushing back, asking a lot of questions about this proposal, being uncomfortable with aspects of it or surprised by aspects of it. So that was the afternoon session. The morning session actually was more devoted to what the Office of School Safety and Security, what they're doing, some partnerships that they've created. But the most dynamic part of the meeting, the the, the controversy came during the afternoon portion when a staff member of Superintendent Ybarra's was kind of walking through the school safety plan that the superintendent has proposed. And, and a lot of concern, a lot of questions, and a lot of pushback. And I kind of foreshadowed that last month um, mm-hmm. with an article, some of these same school safety and security of officials, some of the Idaho education groups expressed concern that, that Ibarra went forward with this plan at the end of the 2018 legislative session, just weeks before her own primary election, but didn't. But what they're saying is they didn't involve the Office of School Safety and Security and didn't involve the three big education groups before bringing it to the public. And since it has been brought to the public, there's a lot of questions and a lot of concerns. And I guess we can start with the nearly $19 million grant program. That's the most visible part of Superintendent Ibarra's proposal. And by far the most expensive. The most expensive. uh, It started out that that was really pitched as grants that would be available to every school to have an armed security presence in all the schools. Well, it turns out a lot of people didn't want that or didn't think that that was money well spent. And and so Ybarra's office has sort of walked that back and said, well, it's still going to be this grant situation. 
but you can use it for a trained security personnel. You can use it for any number of things that the building that the that the local school officials would want, and uh, just a, a lot of questions. Even Senator Lori Den Hartog, a Republican from Meridian, sits on the Senate Education Committee, a very conservative member of the legislature, said, you know, I don't really get it with this grant proposal. It seems like we're baking in additional administrative costs in order to hand out taxpayer dollars that should already be flowing to school districts. And it kind of went on from there. The Pocatello fire chief had a number of questions. It turns out this is going to be one-time grant funding. Mm -hmm. And the Pocatello Fire Chief, Chief Gates, said, you know, I'd rather see this spread out over many years rather than one lump sum all at once. And he said, what if rather than letting the locals decide or have the superintendent award a $25,000 grant that someone could put towards what he termed a low-level paid security force, what if we based it on the data from these assessments that the Office of School Safety and Security is already conducting, they're identifying needs at each individual building. What if we based it on the data from there? Um, so, I mean, it's a really, it gets down to a policy question of what do you do with $19 million? Assuming that if well, ours yes. are elected and assuming that the legislature goes along with this grant program, and those are two big ifs, how do you spend $19 million in school security? I mean, do you spend it in grants that Let's face it, if it's a one-time grant, all you're doing is helping a school hire somebody. You're not providing ongoing funding to pay that employee's salaries and benefits. It's startup money. Or you use that money as a grant program to do something in terms of kind of you know, physical security, which, uh, you know, which you can maybe do more easily with one-time money. So, I mean, there's, there's a pretty big philosophical question here assuming we ever get to that point in the legislature. Yeah, and really this Office of School Safety and Security is talking about, number one, individualized, personalized school safety plans at each campus they visit. But number two, they want to really strive for a common vocabulary between all schools in the state, between all law enforcement agencies, fire protection, parents, and so that they want to focus on prevention, number one. But number two, if, a, if an emergency does happen, whether it's a weather emergency or something much more horrible transpiring on a school campus, they want, they want people to have a calm expectation of what we do next and a common vocabulary and language. And, and so there are concerns that, well, if we just have these grants, you know, some schools could have an armed guard, some schools could have uh, maybe a counselor, some schools could invest that money in door locks, but we're kind of going in all different directions here rather than having standardization and predictability. So that, that was one of the concerns. But I, I got the sense that this is becoming a little bit political with yeah. all the money involved, potential to create new positions, you know, some $20, $21 million programming. People are pushing for their projects here. It is becoming a little bit political. But I get the sense that a lot of these groups said that Ybarra's staff did not go to them before bringing this public. And the fire chief reiterated that point today. I wish you had come to me sooner and we could have sorted through some of this stuff. And so what does that mean? Here's one example that I found from, from Ybarra's group not talking to the other group. Both groups are trying to push forward with a plan to secure funding for a new tip line for okay. Idaho schools. Which is just hard crazy. to argue against a tip sure, line, right? Sure. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. But you've got parallel efforts to seek money for the same thing. And if if one group had talked to the other, 
maybe this wouldn't be happening. Um, and and Yabara's staffer did say, if the Office of School Safety and Security is successful in getting a grant, we will withdraw our request for additional supplemental funding for the tip line. But that budget's already been submitted to the state. And it's like a lot of things have already been put in motion here. Um, but it was just kind of a little bit of a, a chaotic situation. But And it felt, as I read the story from Thursday, it felt like the level of dysfunction around this debate you know, is really, it, it's, it's escalating to the point of, and you had a, a really telling anecdote at the, the top of your story on Thursday. We're arguing about logos now. Yeah. Yeah, that, so Representative Wendy Horman, an Idaho Falls Republican, serves as the chairperson of the Office of School Safety and Security's advisory board. That was in the meeting I was at. At the very end, uh, she told uh, Ybarra's staff to remove the school safety logo from Superintendent Ybarra's website because it was misleading. Uh, she said she'd gotten questions from the public about whether the Office, Office of School Safety and Security is endorsing or is working with or developed it with Ybarra. She said that's not the case, and she said get that logo off the webpage. Um, and so it gives you a sense that, that the two groups are not working together. This was I talked to Representative Horman after the meeting. Representative Horman is a key player on education yeah. issues, a past member of the Education Committee, but a very active, involved important person on the joint budget committee. Sure. She's carried the school budget basically in the house for the last couple of years. She said today, Thursday, was the first briefing she had really had from Ybarra's staff on this school security plan. Um, and, and here we are just a couple of months before the legislative session. The proposed budget and the proposed supplemental have already been submitted to the governor's office in the state. And she said she's just learning about this. She didn't know what the funding levels were or what the superintendent was requesting. And, you know, and we've, we've known for a little while that Superintendent Ybarra and Representative Winnie Horman, you know, may, may not have the closest relationship at, mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, but it, it just seems like people have strong feelings about school safety and security. People, you turn on the news and see things happening all over the country, and it's everyone's worst nightmare, and you don't want something like that to happen anywhere. Uh, and so people feel strongly about it, they're on edge about it, um, there's a lot of money involved, and so it is the kind of thing where people feel strongly about it, and there's strong disagreements and strong positions um, all over the place. But there are also groups that are coming together that are trying to unify law enforcement and school districts and get people on the same page and move to a place of of teamwork and, and working together and um, but it was just kind of a, a that portion of today's meeting when we were looking at the superintendent's proposed plan a pretty tense hour uh, mm -hmm. one of the more intense hours of public meetings that I've experienced in a while and a foreshadowing of an issue that I don't think is going to go away I think it's an issue that's going to resurface during the state superintendent's campaign governor's campaign as we head into November and regardless of the outcomes in November, this is going to be a, a big issue when the legislature reconvenes in January because, you know, the, you know, as you said, I mean, this is an issue that strikes uh, fear in, in a lot of, you know, parents' hearts, uh, students' hearts. I mean, this is, this is such a visceral issue and such a, a pivotal issue that uh, I, I think 
maybe what you heard on Thursday is a, a foreshadowing of a, you know, a, a lot of debate to come. Yeah, I, I think it really is. So stay tuned. But just to be clear, the, these groups today, that these groups on Thursday, they weren't just talking about the emergency response to a school shooting. That was certainly part of it, but they're trying to be much more proactive to focus on anything from unknown adults uh, entering a campus to multiple doors being unlocked to whether a school's PA system is functioning, uh, whether there's mechanism to communicate with law enforcement, whether there's preventative measures, behavior assessments, uh, working with counselors, uh, anything from weather emergencies. Uh, they're not just looking at everyone's worst nightmare, which is the you know, a potential school shooting. They're trying to be take an all-encompassing look, uh, even down to a lot of concern uh, and frustration expressed by this committee about new charter schools cropping up all over the state mm -hmm. and rushing forward with plans to either occupy an existing building or build a new building without checking to see if it is, for instance, downwind from a chemical plant or if the building would be located in, say, a strip mall with lots of commercial traffic. A lot of frustration, especially among law enforcement and building inspectors, about kind of growth within schools and the proliferation of charter schools and people kind of forging ahead with facilities plans without really involving them or really thinking beyond... We just need a facility and we just need to get it open and, and start the school year. And so a very dynamic meeting, a lot going on, a lot of concerns, certainly some positive aspects of the meeting as well. Um, there are people working all throughout Ada and Canyon counties uh, trying to create these partnerships. And so it wasn't just a negative meeting, uh, but a lot going on, a very dynamic meeting. And if you head over to IdahoEdNews.org, had a story near the top of the page on Thursday running through that meeting. And we'll stay on top of this debate as it unfolds. Yeah, we sure will. Another big story this week, Kevin, you're putting together emergency levies that school districts are asking, but these levies are a little bit different than the typical election day levies that we have tracked because emergency levies are driven kind of by increases in, I guess at this point, still attendance, yeah. but they don't require a voter approval. Can you kind of explain what an emergency levy is and, and what's going on and the amount of money we're talking about? Yeah, and this is something we've tracked now for several years. Uh, each fall, uh, districts can impose a property tax levy, and it's based on growth. It's based on increased student numbers. And it's a very different kind of a levy. You know, we write about the supplemental levies, and there's been such a huge debate about the growth of supplemental levies across the state. But emergency levies are a very different process and not exactly the most transparent process. Uh, school boards can, like I say, they, they can impose this levy uh, without going to the voters. It, it's, it's designed to be sort of a quick response. Yeah. You know, a school has more students than they had a year ago. They've got uh, they've got a higher staff to handle this uh, increase in student numbers. They need to uh, buy textbooks uh, to to get books in the hands of these students that maybe they weren't expecting to have show up. So the the idea is to get the money moving quickly as opposed to going to the voters. And I I understand that aspect of it, but it is a process that that. Uh, doesn't occur, you know, yeah, at the polls like uh, like a supplemental levy. So anyway, what we found this year is that uh, seven districts have uh, 
imposed emergency levies, and the bill comes to about $9.4 million statewide. The largest, not surprisingly, the West Ada School District, the largest district in the state, they had about 600 more students showing up you know, when they did the daily attendance this year as opposed to the year before. Another year of rapid growth in West Ada, no big news there, no big surprise there. So again, West Ada had to uh, impose an emergency levy. Most of that money is going to go to tax votes. And, you know, this is kind of the, you know, recurring theme in West Ada. They've had a, an emergency levy every year for at least a decade. Uh, we kind of run down those numbers in, in the story. It's kind of a strange process. Mm -hmm. And I found myself writing about the process here as well as, you know, you know who has a levy and where the money might be going. Um, Nampa this week voted to uh, impose an emergency levy uh, after voting also to lower their overall property tax rate because there's been a lot of growth in Nampa, so the, you know, the, the tax base has grown. So the tax rate for homeowners and businesses in Nampa will go down, but there will be an emergency levy that's designed to uh, maybe hire some staff or uh, allow schools that are at or near capacity to, to deal with uh, this influx of students. So anyway, we've had a vote. It was a four-to-one vote on the school board to impose the emergency levy. Just oppose that against the Bonneville School District in eastern Idaho. And this is another district that has had one of these emergency levies every year, it seems, for a long time. This fast is an interesting one Fast-growing district yeah. in eastern Idaho, as, we, as we've chronicled. What Bonneville did uh, was there was no vote by the school board, and there was no... Nothing we could find in a school board agenda or school board minutes where the emergency levy was really discussed. What the district did instead was basically assumed that they were going to qualify for another emergency levy based on what they anticipated was going to be another round of, uh, of growth. But so, they made this decision, Kevin, weeks, months mm -hmm, really, before yeah. even one student showed up right. on campus. So they incorporated the emergency levy, which comes to about $1.8 million. So it's it's not small change. I mean, $1.8 million, you know, we've spent a lot of ink or a lot of uh, pixels, I guess, uh, writing about the $200,000 uh, buyout uh, for retiring superintendent Chuck Shack in, in Bonneville. So $1.8 million, I mean, that's you know, that's nine buyouts, if you want to put it in that kind of a context. It's, it's a considerable chunk of money. We could not see where it was really discussed at any length in a school board meeting. Like I said, there was no vote. Certainly not since school started that we right, could find. Right, right. And, and the way this process works is um, later this month, Bonneville will do something that the law also requires, which is you take out a legal notice to say that you're going to uh, pursue an emergency levy. Well, it wouldn't have pursued it. I mean, it's, it's happening. Yeah. Uh, those legal notices will appear in the Idaho Falls Post Register later this month, uh, next week and the following week, I believe. But here we're talking, you know, about three months or so, maybe after the school board and the board of trustees decided, you know, we're going to need this uh, emergency levy. We think we've got growth coming, and you know, we'll be able to justify and you know and defend legally defend the the need for an emergency levy. So. It's a really strange process. So I find myself focusing somewhat on the process as well as the 
you know, where does the money go and, and how will it be spent? Because we didn't even initially think, based on our review of board minutes, agendas, and meetings, we did not initially think Bonneville was seeking an emergency levy, but you, like a good journalist, did your homework and made that last call just to say, hey, you guys have sought this in the past and received it. Are you, I want to confirm you're not doing it this year. How long has it been since you've not done one? And then, oh yeah, by the way, no, we actually are. Right. I mean, you know, Randy Schrader, our, our data guy, uh, poured through the minutes and the agendas across the state for, for school boards, trying to find districts that had uh, done an emergency levy. And that's, you know, that's, you know, the most tried and true way to try to find out what's happening at, at a school board is to read the minutes and read mm -hmm. the agendas and see what, uh, see what they're talking about in, in board meetings. He found no mention of an emergency levy in Bonneville, and the only reason that struck me odd as a reporter was, hey, wait a minute, they've done this for years. Right. It's a growing district. They're, they're, you know, it, would, it would surprise me if Bonneville didn't have increased student numbers that would uh, allow the district to pursue an emergency levy, and it would have surprised me if the district decided not to pursue an emergency levy. So it just, you know, you know, just, you know, mild alarm bells <laughs> went off. And I was like, okay, well, let's find out what happened here. And if Bonneville didn't pursue a levy after years of pursuing it, that's a story too. So I just wanted to find out. And uh, the district said, well, yeah, actually, we do have an emergency levy, and here's how we did it. So like I say, it is you now, and we're paid to track this down. Randy's paid to read board minutes. Uh, you know, I'm don't be um, jealous. Yeah, really, you know, <laughs> this dream job has been taken, folks. And, you know, and you know, it's our job, you and I, to look at some of what Randy digs up and say, what? Okay, I got a question about that. I got to follow that up. And, and that's kind of all I did with Bonneville. It was no, you know, it was no, you know, no great act of journalism. It was just, this just seems kind of weird. Let's find out. But that's what we're paid to do. So if you're a patron in the Bonneville district, it would have been next to impossible to know that this levy was right. on the books uh, and that you know your property taxes to the tune of $1.8 million is going to be uh, used to help uh, deal with, with growth in the district. And, you know, the district's growing. I don't think there's much question about that. And, you know, you know bills come with growth. I mean, there's no question about that either. But the, the process was was very strange and you know again that's why this became a story about process as much as anything yeah for sure i mean a great resource i mean you talk about how it's your job and, and mandy's job but uh i think the taxpayers have especially the patrons of the bonneville school district in eastern idaho have that much more information today that maybe they didn't have yesterday or over the last two months or whatever the case and, may be and wherever you are on growth and wherever you are on school funding um yeah, I think patrons, taxpayers in that district have a right to know what's what's going on. I mean, it's not it's not my place to say whether this is something that patrons should be uh, comfortable with, uncomfortable with. I mean, just here's like the I information. Say, yeah, like I say, it, when a district is growing, you know, costs rise when when growth occurs. I get that, but we just wanted to make sure people knew what was going on. So we've got the rundown of what happened this year with the emergency levies. Uh, you can see if your uh, local district. Uh, is collecting, imposing a levy, and, and you know, just real quickly, not not to belabor it. I think we have to do this almost every time we talk about school finance. 
is to try to put the numbers into context. So over the past 10 years, uh, we've had $80 million of uh, emergency levies across the state, largely in districts like West Ada and Bonneville and Twin Falls, where the growth has really been sustained. Your large, fast-growing districts. Exactly. Um, most school districts have never collected one of these uh, levies over the past 10 years. So we're talking about $8 million or so a year over the past 10 years. Supplemental levies, the ones that you do vote on as, as a patron, we're talking about $195 million just last year, yep. one year's worth of supplemental levies. So these are not huge dollars in that context, but again, it's, it's tax dollars, it's uh, the cost of growth, it's uh, you know, something that uh, we track every year. So that's what we found this time around. All right, good stuff. Head on over to IdahoEdNews.org. You can find out if your local school district is on the list of districts that are uh, moving forward to seek the emergency levy. Kevin, you're kind of on a roll talking about budgets and numbers. Uh, so, so let's keep that going and, and perhaps close the loop on a discussion that we started uh, last week, two weeks ago in the office, really about the superintendent Ybarra's budget proposal as it relates to to teacher pay and um, and an air that that uh, that came out of that. Well, so last week, if you listened to the podcast, you heard us talk at length about a really unorthodox news release that came out of uh, Abara's office last week. It was a follow-up to her uh, news release about the budget request. This time around, 24 hours later, Abara's office was saying that. Uh, They'd found a mistake in their budget that uh, the money that they thought they were going to put into teacher raises was not going to go nearly as far as they had hoped. And what struck us both, you and I, unusual, uh, struck us odd as we read that news release was, you know, in addition to just trying to figure out exactly what happened here, the news release went... Uh, to some length to say that the mistake was made by Tim Hill, who has been in the um, State Department of Education for years. He is the budget guru in the State Department of Education. He has worked for Democratic uh, state superintendents, Republican state superintendents for 21 years. And the news release laid the blame or you know, put the blame for the mistake on Tim Hill, who crunches the numbers and helps uh, with a lot of the heavy lifting in the budget proposal. So a very unorthodox news release that we talked about at great length last week. Well, that led to a very unusual meeting that we had on Tuesday. Uh, Tim Hill, along with a couple of uh, the, you know, the media folks for the State Department of Education, they sought us out to come in. Uh, and Tim Hill spent much of that time talking about how this happened and really, really contrite about what happened. Uh, long story short, uh, it was an error that he made looking at a spreadsheet, plugging some numbers into a spreadsheet, trying to figure out how much uh, it would cost to raise teacher salaries to to, uh, to some levels that uh, Ibarra was hoping to, to hit. The spreadsheet failed him, basically. I mean, it, it led him astray in terms of how much this was going to cost. It was going to cost a lot more, $100 million more, to get the raises that uh, Ibarra promised at first. So Tim Hill, a guy that we've dealt with and, and talked to many times over the years, uh, came in. He's, I don't think you can fake, and I don't think he was at all faking, 
that he was really agonized over the mistake, really uh, contrite, really upset at himself for making this kind of a mistake. I mean, this is a guy who's been doing this for 21 years, about as knowledgeable about school finance as anybody in the state, um, took pains to say that he wanted to be uh, kind of singled out in the news release, that he wanted it clear that it was his error. And he took issue with us suggesting that um, the news release was throwing him under the bus. He felt like that was unfair, that he wasn't you know, thrown under the bus, that he really wanted to own up to a mistake that he'd made, that he didn't want it to you know, be a reflection on the superintendent. So it was a very unusual meeting. And you know, I, I felt like we should talk about it just quickly to just sort of, you know, reflect some of what what he said, what Hill said when he met with us, because it, you know, it was precipitated by last week's podcast. So we're just sort of kind of laying out what he talked about and what he uh, what he said in, 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 in our meeting on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that struck me about what Tim said, and I've known Tim for, you know, not known him, we're not buddies, but I've worked with him and, and sought him out as a source for, you know, maybe something he, like yeah, seven he's, years. He's kind of a go-to on school finance. I mean, we both have leaned on him a lot because he's one of the few people who really understands this stuff inside and out. He's been very patient, very professional with me. His reputation uh, within the education and political communities in the state is rock solid. Uh, he's a budget guru, and he knows this stuff better than anybody or as well as anybody. I guess the thing that stood out to me when he came into our office on Tuesday is he said, I've worked for superintendents of public instruction for 21 years. I've never put a sign in my yard or made a political donation to everybody, but I make the same pledge to everybody who runs for office as you will have my best every day of the year and I will be there to support you. And so he was extremely concerned uh, that he may have not lived up to that on that individual day. And he did not want to do anything coming out of his office that would hurt Superintendent Ibarra. Um, and I admire that greatly. I've, I've, I've long admired Tim Hill, but he said, I've made a pledge to everybody, Republican or Democrat, who I work with, that you will have my full support and my best every single day, and I intend to live up to that. And he talked about a mistake he made. And, I mean, he painted this in, in terms of one of the very worst days that he's had in 21 years on the job. And I know that we can all relate to making a mistake or having something embarrassing go out in print or out in public. And uh, my head's just really yeah. off for Tim uh, for the way he handled it and said, no, uh, I do want you to know that I made a pledge to give my best to whoever I work for, and I intend to live up to that. And, and I made a mistake, and he felt awful about it. Yeah, I mean, you can't... Yeah, you know, I, I take completely at his word that he is is agonizing over this and has agonized over it. I mean, that that really came through and really rang, rang you know, sincere and, and true. You know, and I think what it does underscore is, you know, obviously we're in an election season and obviously the state superintendent's position is a political position. That's why it's on the ballot every four years. Right. But within a State Department of Education, a staff of 140 people. There, there are folks who work the political end, but there are folks who also work the policy end, and those positions are not political positions, and they're not political appointments necessarily. Uh, as we said, Tim Hill's been there for 21 years. He's not a political appointee. He's a career budget analyst yeah. uh, for the State Department of Education. 
Uh, and a darn good one. Yes, and a very good one. And, you know, I I think that what I kind of took away from in, in all of this with, with our conversation with, with Kim Hill the other day was sort of a feeling of, you know, here's somebody who is a, a policy guy who is now worried that he's going to be embroiled in the politics of this election. And, you know, I, I think that was his uncomfortable position for him as the position of having to correct a mistake. So we kind of wanted to wrap up the podcast just sort of reflecting what our conversation was with, with him and, and sort of, you know, give you a sense of, you know, the follow-up that we had uh, of his own volition. You know, again, you know, he sought us out and said, look, I want to, I want to talk about this some more. So, but he, I, he I do, did. I do want to communicate to our listeners that you know, number one, Tim is standing tall here, but number two, Tim identified the air working with. It, well, Paul Headley from Legislative Services first pointed it out, but but Tim knows what happened, and he went through with us what happened, and it, so he knows what happened, and he won't do it again. Right. And, uh, and, you know, this I is think, not an ongoing problem. I want to communicate to our listeners. Right. And and this was you know as he walked through an, an error in working through the spreadsheets and you know one other thing that was just sort of a a, a human takeaway in all of this was uh you know hill talked about um getting an email from paul headley at 5 30 that following morning and paul headley for those who don't know him he's the legislative services office uh he's the education budget guru and, and has been in the past uh you know, he, like Tim Hill, is one of the few people who really understands the public school budget inside and out. And, you know, Paul Headley, like Tim Hill, is a policy guy. He's not a political appointee. Um, so you had these two, you know, policy guys going back and forth saying, well, these numbers don't add up. And, and you know, something's not right here. The 530 email really struck me because I think everybody who's ever worked for a newspaper has had those kind of 530 a.m. mornings moments where it's like, we did what? The headline said what? We misspelled what? How? I mean, the idea of waking up to a mistake is something that you know. I think every journalist in the world uh, can relate to. It's it's not a good feeling, but it, you know. Anyway, uh, we just kind of wanted to sort sure. of close the loop here uh, yeah. with, with Tim Hill and um, you know, and last week's podcast and now this week's podcast. All right. Well, thank you for bearing with us. We wanted to. It was a difficult meeting. We wanted to uh, talk about our role in the story and, and talk about what we walked away from the meeting with. But I do want to communicate that, like, on a very big level, the process worked. Legislative yeah. Services Offices found an error immediately and pointed it out. And Tim Hill knows where it happened and, and knows exactly what went wrong. And so the problem has been right, caught right. And, and has and, been and, corrected. And, it, and it's always chic to say, oh, government bureaucrats. Oh, why do we have all these bureaucrats? Why do we have these layers of bureaucracy? Well, it, it this is a well. case where your checks and balances really worked, where one professional who really understands the budget saw something that another professional who really understands the budget, you know, it, it just slipped through, you know. That's one of those cases where you want those extra sets of eyes. You want that uh, that, that extra layer of protection and, uh, and and review. You know, yes, like you say, that's a case of the system working. At the end of the day, and you, know, you know, this is a case where things were sorted out. So at least people know what this budget proposal will do and what it means for teacher salaries and you know 
how that plays out as a political issue, you know, that's one thing. But the policy end of it, you know, that, that's that's been resolved and, and it's been resolved, you know, as a policy matter by policy pros. All right. There's only about four or five more topics I want to get to on this edition of the Extra Kind yeah, of Podcast. Yeah, we're just warming up here 36 <laughs> minutes in, so... Yeah. No, but th that covers it. Uh, we appreciate you bearing with us. We did uh, want to get this week's top stories out, but also circle back uh, on the story from last week about the budget and about our role in that story and what we have learned since last week's podcast. So thank you so much. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Extra Credit Podcast. We have a lot of fun breaking down this complicated intersection school politics and school policy. Be sure and come back next week uh, for another new edition of Extra Credit. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.